0: Another episode of the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. I am Anthony Cazenza, joined by John Sheeran. We are here on our weekly show once again to talk about yet another loss by the Cincinnati Bengals. This time in the first chapter of the 2019 Battle of Ohio, the Cleveland Browns got the better of the Cincinnati Bengals, 27 19. John, how you doing, my friend? We're we're one and twelve. the The NFL draft is right around the corner, and I think.
1: Mercifully so. <laughs> yeah. uh, how you doing? Uh, my anxiety levels are really, really, really high right now, and it usually is just because it's Christmas. But there's three games left, and the Bengals still only have a one-game lead at the top of the draft order, so we're get- it's getting really dicey right now. And that that Monday night game definitely almost took me over the edge there a little bit.
0: My God, uh, you know my my Twitter timeline. You know, you would think that the Bengals are in the wild card hunt, and everybody <laughs> and everybody's you know. I uh,
1: go Giants, go Giants. You know, we got to get this playoff
0: spot, and it's not really about the playoff spot, it's about the draft spot.
1: But I'm telling you, like, I haven't been this invested in Bengals football since they were in the playoff race because it's like a playoff race for losers. It's like this, this matters for the first time. The Bengals and the NFL around the Bengals, they're playing, you know football that actually matters for the future of this team instead of the future is now in April instead of January. So for the first time I'm actually emotionally invested in Bengals games for like four years. So they stink. They're one in 12 right now, but they're keeping me interested in a way that they haven't normally done it in the past.
0: That's true. And that is one way to, to look at it. Um, The, so the Cincinnati Bengals have and all of their fans really have their eye on the draft. The Bengals sit at 1 and 12. We'll talk about the loss to the Browns. We'll talk about some improvement we've seen at some at some spots. We'll talk about you know a lot of different things with the outcome of this game, the future of the team. Is there actually in a loss? I mean, I guess this is a season where you got to try and find some form of moral victories. I hate that, but is there a sense of things actually moving in the right direction as the year goes on? Some areas that were really poor have been improving. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the quarterback play. And then we've got a couple of special guests tonight. The first is Brent Taylor from roll Bama Roll, the SB nation Site for the Alabama Crimson Tide. He's going to talk to us about Tua Tagovailoa as well as maybe a couple of other prospects. But we're going to mo- mostly focus on quarterbacks this uh, this evening, this week as we as we bring in our special guests. We'll talk about the the video video gate. I don't know what you want to use. spygate two, whatever you want to call it. We'll talk a little bit about that, and then we've got another special guest, Joseph Yoon from Addicted to Quack, the SB Nation Oregon site he'll help us preview Justin Herbert and uh, maybe a couple of other Oregon players as well, but it's going to be about the quarterbacks. Those are two players that will be on the Bengals radar. So we wanted to get them on this week's show next week. We will be joined by uh, a representative from the LSU SB nation blog to help us talk about Joe Burrow. So quarterbacks, 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 that's what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks as the draft is just a few months away. And this season is concluding. You can get this show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. You can get it on Megaphone, iHeartRadio. You can get it on YouTube. All of our stuff is on CincyJungle.com, so get the show how you can. We appreciate you you listening. We appreciate uh, the live listeners, too. This, we're, we started a little late. Unfortunately, one of our guests was slated to come in towards the end of our usual recording time. He had to push it back. So we're, we had to push back our show a little bit to accommodate. So we appreciate those of you tuning in live to, uh, even though maybe a little later than usual, stick with us. We've got some good interviews coming up. We're excited about it. That being said, John, What do you make of this week? I mean, I I, I think it was you and maybe Goodberry and others that were out there kind of going, oh, they're screwing this up. They're screwing it up because the Bengals were nearly pulling out the win and they had a lead and they were keeping it close with the Browns. Uh, You know, another one possession game. Bengals kind of did a lot of things right, had some unfamiliar things go wrong for them. The officiating, I thought, was really wacky your overall impressions of the game. And then we'll kind of get into more specific areas from there.
1: Yeah. And you know, watching it, it, it was uncomfortable for a lot of reasons. Well, I mean like, yeah, me personally, I wouldn't mind if they lose. I would prefer to lose at this point because losing now is winning for the future. But at the same time, like, you know, they're still trying to win. I mean, Taylor is still pressing the message of, of establishing a winning culture and definitely going up against a, an, an in-state rival An in-state division rival is always important. And, You know, it it was it was a Browns team that is, I guess, kind of surging now towards later season because they're still technically in the playoff race, even though it's been majorly a disappointment for the most part. There, primarily because of the head coach, but like. It was a close game all throughout because both quarterbacks were having a hard time trying to take advantage of the situation that was presented before them because neither offense was really doing anything, and uh, the, both running games were doing good, but neither quarterback was really taking advantage of the secondaries that they were playing. And Andy Dalton, for the most part, played a, a pretty uh, shoddy game and had a couple good throws mixed in here and there, but that pick six was ultimately the difference maker in there. But just in general, like like you alluded to, the effort level, is definitely higher in these past couple of weeks, and I think you can attribute that to Andy Dong being back there. But just looking at just the progression of this team, I think they're both their offense and defensive weighted DVOAs are higher than their actual DVOAs and weighted DVOAs. from Football Outsiders take um, heavily weights the later portion of the seasons rather than the earlier portions of the season, so it's taking account for your more recent performances. So they're definitely trending, albeit. Small, uh, slightly, not not that much, in the right direction, and I think that's been apparent over these last couple of games. The defense has definitely started to step up, only allowing 20 points in this game because, you know, the seven points came from the pick six, but again, Baker looked pretty rattled, much more like the the earlier season version of himself, and they were definitely playing with a a lot more intensity, and yeah, like, their running game was really good, and it's probably their strength of the team, but they definitely played well enough to win this game, and unfortunately, like you said, there was just a lot of crazy calls from the refs, a lot of reviews, something that we haven't seen before at all this season, a, a, a referee-initiated uh, review for a pass interference that was actually reversed and ended up going against the Bengals in this sense. So there were a couple of things that ultimately swayed this game, but a, a better a better game from some important factors on, for the Bengals could have definitely got them this win. I mean, were you really – I wasn't overly impressed with that Browns team. I mean
0: uh... – not not only have they not been impressive really this entire year, but I mean they did they didn't show anything to me that was like, wow, this team's ready to go right into the playoffs and beat somebody. i turnovers they looked like lackadaisical. This was a game that they absolutely needed they had they got it, but they basically may feel that what should have been basically three interceptions in the game. um I don't know. I, to me that was just not an impressive Browns team. and I guess that's also an indictment of the Bengals losing to them.
1: I think it's fitting that they played the Jets and the Browns back to back because those are two teams that, that, me personally, I had higher expectations for what they're going to do this year, yeah. and I under I underestimated how bad those coaching hires were for starters for the Jets and how awful Adam Gase has been and how s- so weird and inconsistent they've been because they have, they now have five wins uh, this week. But last week I was on here saying they looked like one of the worst teams in the NFL that I've ever seen before, and then the Browns are kind of in similar territories where you think they would be a, a lot better based off the roster and the talent that they have, but you look at, you know, how they play and you think the secondary is very disjointed. You know, there's not a lot of communication going on there and their offense can be just a lot better with, with the pieces that they have. So with the Jets, it was more like, I can't believe they're this bad. With the Browns, it's more like, man, they could actually be a lot better if they just put a couple things together. I think a lot of that starts with the coaching, but like we've talked about early, earlier this season, you know, there's not a lot of advantages in that department for the Bengals going up against any other team in the league because their coaches are still starting to figure it out. And to to his credit, Louie Anarumo and his staff are starting to better fit their pieces in the scheme that they tr- they're they trying to implement now. We're seeing more of a traditional 3-4 um, front with their front with their front seven, and you're starting to see some secondary players like Jesse Bates play play a little bit more comfortable in the system as well. So they've had the they've had the um the the advantage of playing some some bad quarterbacks over the past couple weeks, and that's definitely giving them I guess some momentum going forward. And that that's the momentum is going to help them going up against another struggling quarterback uh, this Sunday. So the defense is playing well enough to keep them in games, and it's really about the offense kind of um fo- following and soon and starting to have this late season progression.
0: So we'll start, we'll continue the discussion on defense and then we'll move into the offense in terms of improvement, things we've seen. Um, Really nothing has been, for the most part, working right for the Cincinnati Bengals throughout most of the year. However, we talked about recently, well, really throughout a good chunk of the season, there are now seven one-possession games by this team and you can put that on You can, you can, I guess, put a feather in the cap of Lou Anarumo, kind of like you mentioned, keeping things at least manageable and close for the most part, that the fact that these games are one possession games, um, the improvement of the linebackers really since Preston Brown left, uh, you know, Jermaine Pratt played, started to play well. Um, he's kind of PFF grade wise. It's been rising every week, um, so let's, let's talk about the defense, and uh, you kind of put a post up really t- – I think it was the rookie report on Cincy Jungle. Jermaine Pratt was one focus. Michael Jordan was the other. We'll talk about him in a minute. But Jermaine Pratt was kind of the focus there. I thought he's shown improvement. I thought the safeties, particularly Jesse Bates, has shown immense improvement over the past couple of weeks, um, and not just because of the big plays. He just seems to be way more near the ball more frequently than before. Uh, a little bit more of consistency on the pass rush the past few weeks. So uh, things just kind of seem to be clicking a little bit. And then, you know, uh, to the defense's credit, like you mentioned, one of those touchdowns the Bengals gave them was off of pick six. So your impressions of the defense and our perceptions changing in your eyes of Lou Anarumo, the job he's doing with what he's got on that side of the ball.
1: So you have addition by just pure addition with the uh, return of Carlos and back into that defense yeah. line, giving that pass rush a boost, allowing you know he wasn't healthy for this week, but in in the weeks that Lawson and Sam Hubbard have been on the field, you you, you have Sam Hubbard playing a little bit less and a little bit more towards his strengths, and having Lawson take advantage of those one on one opportunities as a pass rusher on the edge behind him at linebacker. You have addition by subtraction by taking Preston Brown out of there and putting in Jermaine Pratt into the middle linebacker role. And I think earlier in the season they were trying to rotate both those guys, and Pratt really wasn't being put in the best situations, and also. He was still very young, and uh, I think something I forgot, and I think a lot of people forgot, is that he was only a one-year starter at linebacker at NC State. He was a yeah. converted safety that uh, had doubled some injuries. He was a five-year player there, but he only had one year starting experience. So to throw him out there in the middle of the season as a starter, he was going to make naturally make some mistakes. And I think the main thing that has – hurt him in terms of his PFF grade has been his coverage bust. And that happened a lot against Baltimore. It happened a few times against the Raiders, but that has slowly stabilized because like we talked about, you know, the quarterback play for the opposition has obviously decreased. They played the Steelers to put the jets to put the Browns who haven't really taken advantage of either Nick vigil or, or Jermaine pride in coverage. And both those guys have been fine there because the the offenses they're playing are just a lot more simpler and a lot more inconsistent. So, you know, they can only play who they play against and there's no knocking from the strength of the schedule from that perspective, but it's definitely given them a boost ever since the removal of Preston Brown. I think Nick Vigil is one of the, like the 15 best pro, uh, linebackers, according to PFF. I think uh, Pratt's great. Like you said, it has risen up as well. There's just a lot more consistency and there's still some things that you want Pratt to do a little bit better. He's still missing a few tackles when going towards the sideline here and there. He's still getting the ball lost from time to time when he's, when he's in that pursuit role. But in terms of what Preston Brown didn't do well and the fact that he didn't move well in space, the fact that he couldn't get off blocks, he couldn't stay in his fits. Those are things that Pratt, Pratt is still doing very well. And those are things where, that Pratt was doing well before uh, Preston Brown got away. So he's getting more opportunities to do the things to he, that, that are his strengths, the things that he does well. And that's taking on blockers and making stops at the line of scrimmage. He's one of their best, if not the best run defender that they have in the second level of that defense. And, you know, with with Jermaine Pratt's in, in improvement and increased playing time, you have Nick Vigil now um, taking advantage of the fact that there's no more liability next to him, and, and he's been put in, into better situations as well. He's getting more comfortable in, in the defense, and you have to wonder if the fact that he's an impending free agent and the fact that he was having a terrible start this year, maybe that's kind of boosted his morale and, and his ability to say, hey, I'm in a contract year. You know, I have an opportunity to be brought back on a team that might have you know, only three linebackers on the roster going into 2020. So I, I think he realizes that this is his time to step up. And, you know, player development is not linear. It, it, it takes a while for some guys to really reach their potential. For, for Vigil, I don't think he's anything more than an average player still. But I definitely think that he realizes the situation and he's finally putting himself in better situations to succeed.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned it, and Zachary Stemple in the live YouTube chat mentioned it about Nick Vigil playing better. He had probably one of his best games, or at least best halves of football um, that I've seen him play this last week. He really shot off the screen and, uh, you know, almost had two interceptions, snagged one away from uh, the tight end there, and, you know, played played pretty well. And, uh, you know, that side of the ball, really the, the entire team, too, that's kind of where this discussion will head in a minute. But this team is just... It's still it's still playing hard. It's still playing hard, and they're still, uh, you know, even the veterans seem to be making plays and, and showing a high level of effort. Transitioning to the offense, what what did you see from the offensive line? I again, I don't know if it's you know they move Michael Jordan in because of Billy Price. Uh, they say it's his back. I think it's that plus he's been ineffective. Mm -hmm. Um, they seem to really like Michael Jordan, despite him being uh, struggling a lot. Um, You know, is this still more the, the, the situation where the team decided to alter the type of run place, because that's, that's been a big difference over the past month. Um, You know, Joe Mixon now all of a sudden has a shot at getting a, a, a thousand yard season after, you know, it looked like he might get half of that for the year. So is this still more play calling and just different run schemes, or is it a guy like Michael Jordan maturing, kind of growing in his role? He is, I, I've said this a couple times on the program, one of, if not the youngest guy on the team, he's a really young guy. So, or is it both? I mean, it very well could be both, but uh, I mean, still, not a lot to like up front on the offensive line. Cordy Glenn's return has helped, obviously. And then Michael Jordan really kind of stood out on a few plays this week.
1: Yeah, like, there's they're definitely still building off the the, the transition they had midseason with that running game. And it did hit some bumps in the road here and there, b- primarily because Billy Price is still there. And like you said, he's dealing with a back injury. But also, like, they re- they realize that Michael Jordan has way more potential than, than Billy Price does. And the only way he's going to realize that potential is giving him more reps. And you're already seeing the the, the differences between price and Jordan in the run game, because the main thing that was plaguing them early on the season and why they couldn't get the original uh, running scheme going is, was their second level blocking. You had so many linebackers just, you know, unidentified and, and and unblocked in the second level, making easy plays, swallowing easy gaps. Even when you had, you know, three or four blocks on the offensive line being very, being blocked perfectly by, by, uh, by the other, by the other offensive lineman. But Jordan, that has been the main improvement for him so far in these past couple weeks. He's, Like against the Jets, he he, I think he had like by my count like five whiffs in the second level, and that and those led to bad runs from the offense. He was so much better in this game against the Browns, just climbing up to the second level. I know he had some great pulls on some power concepts, but I mainly focused on how he. Took his angles towards the linebackers, was able to get out in front and seal guys out. And, and he did that very well. And I think that's the, the main thing that's gonna take him from where he is now to where he where the Bengals want him to be. And they realize that he's such a better athlete than Price. And he has such more physical, you know, he's he's longer, he's he's taller, he's he's just the, he's just a better physical specimen at the position. And those, you know, in, in his height and his length is going to help him in, in those aspects in, in the run game. And there's still definitely things he needs to work on in, in terms of zone blocking and in terms of re- reach blocking so, some defensive tackles or whatever. But I do think that he he's, he's definitely on the right track going forward. And just the offense line in general, with the return of Cordy Glenn, I think it's worth noting that they've been deploying a lot more empty protection sets with, with Glenn back. I think they trust him and Bobby Hart at this point to handle Uh, um, responsibilities of uh, of blocking edge rushers and not giving them a lot of help with tight ends and running backs specifically compared to what they were earlier in the season. So I think that's definitely a shift that's worth noting. And Michael Jordan has done a lot better in in that regard too, of of recognizing his assignments and pass protection and helping out both Trey Hopkins and uh, Cordy Glenn. So the addition of Glenn back into the lineup along along with Jordan has given them more opportunities to get more diverse and more creative in their overall offensive scheme. And you're seeing the slight growth because there's, there is more consistency in the offense, even with a different quarterback back there. And you're definitely seeing some improvements in that regard. So just the additions of those two give them a lot more options to do the things that they want to do so far.
0: Yeah. So I, for those of you looking at uh, the live video and or if you, if you happen to catch the show on YouTube, um, I've got a I'm sharing a screen here, just a little snapshot pro football focus and um, a shot of, you know, what it looks like, what his scores are, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, you can kind of see his grades and, and all of that. So, um, you know, it's not the, the numbers aren't great, but it's, it's improvement and it's kind of improvement in little areas. It, it seems like, um, you know, some of these young guys and, and I think initially Taylor had a little bit of the Marvin Lewis mindset in that you know we're going to give these young guys a shot. Once they screw up, they're gone. Um, <laughs> and I think he had that mindset. And feel free to disagree with me if, if you like, or if if you think I'm pulling this out of my rear end here. It seems like he may have kind of felt like there's some pressure to win. He's got to he's got to put up some wins, especially with the guys being injured. He's got to put forth a good showing in his you know, rookie year as a head coach. So he can't afford to have kind of a lot of these growing pains from some of these areas. Whereas, you know, the season may have gotten out of control a little bit in terms of the win loss record. Now he's more, he's more kind of willing and able to kind of ride with these guys. And he's kind of saying, you know what, go in there. And if you make a mistake, you make a mistake, but we're going to, we're going to have you learn. Whereas it took other young players forever to get out of the doghouse uh, from Marvin Lewis um, when they when they screwed up. That's one difference I'm kind of seeing in in these guys getting second chances and Zach Taylor kind of sticking to his word a little bit. And the best guy is going to play. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that that resonates in that locker room.
1: Like like that that basically sums it up for me. Like it w- it wasn't necessarily about just being Marvin Lewis 2.0 in that in that facet. We saw from the very beginning. Uh, of this season and towards the end of training camp that the best offense line was going to play the best overall team the best roster was going to was going to make the team and when jordan started struggling early on you're thinking okay well there's no way that he can justify keeping this guy out there when he stuck his neck out there in the beginning and basically made these proclamations about feeling the best five offensive linemen so jordan was rightfully benched because he was playing god-awful and you showed that pff grade of 37.1 Right, and and that's all. And and that right now is relative to what he's doing right now. So in the past couple weeks, he's put up grades of fifty-eight point two and fifty-four point three against the Jets and Browns, uh, respectively. So it is improvement. It's relative to where he was, and it's still not, you know, considered above average or even average from a sense of the average guard play. But it's much better than what he was before, and that's what you want to see towards later part of the season.
0: So before we get to the quarterbacks, because that's going to segue into our interview coming up here in just a handful of minutes. let's talk about the kind of the direction of the team where it's heading. You know, there we're talk we're talking about some perceived improvement from spots that were very weak. The weakest spots on the team, linebacker and offensive line, not great. Mind you, they still let up a hundred yard rusher this last week, but really one of that was because of a 57 yard play. Other than that, it was a lot of just pedestrian stuff. Uh, you know, they they're playing better on the back end of the defense, creating turnovers, almost three interceptions. If not for that weird reversal at the end there, Um, they're creating turnovers. They're limiting the, the yards and the points, another one possession loss. And to me, John Joe Mixon playing with his hair on fire on a one win team, Tyler Boyd showing emotion, making plays, Andy Dalton kind of showing emotion and, and, you know, we'll talk more about him in a minute. But Andy Dalton, guys in leadership roles, Carlos Dunlap, a week earlier, coming off a career game. Right, these guys are still playing. They're putting forth the effort. Um, there are only a couple times this year, really, we can kind of question the effort. But on a one win team, I think you like to see that. I don't want to grasp for moral victories, but do you kind of, even though the losses are still piling up, do you are you still feeling a little bit better? Maybe at the end of this season heading into next year, if they get the new quarterback, nail the draft, that sort of thing, are are you feeling that things are maybe slowly moving in the right direction as the year's
1: concluding? I definitely do. And I think it's more of a domino effect where there's the right leaders in the right spots of leadership are stepping up and making, making sure guys are accountable making sure guys in the right spots. And because of that, the areas on defense specifically that are most important, they're playing well. The pass rush is doing well. The secondary is doing well. And because of that, the linebackers, the best two linebackers on this roster are playing good enough. And right now the defense is playing good enough to win ball games. And on offense, the offensive line is, is doing, it at the at the bare minimum, an average job of, of protecting the quarterback. And they're doing a great job of opening more lanes to the running back. And they're working in unison in this new refined scheme that they have. And the receiver play is still questionable because they don't have the best guy out there. But like you said, Tyler Boyd, he's still trying out there. Joe Mixon's still trying out there. They're getting both C.J. Uzoma and Tyler Eifried more involved in the passing game. They're creating separation with with more five-route concepts and keeping uh, the quarterback back the back their nephew protection because they they're starting to trust the offensive line a little bit. So, you know, they're still losing. They're they're still a bad team, but things are trending it upwards in the in the ways you want to see for a team that's one in twelve with a coaching staff that is as unexperienced to them. So there's definitely positives to take away from a game like this.
0: Yeah, Robert Obrecht in the live Facebook chat says that effort shows that the players are still buying in, in my opinion. Steve Gray in the live Facebook chat says Mixon is a beast. Imagine him with a good offensive line. Yes, definitely. Uh, and he's had, you know, the, the offensive line last year was subpar. This year has been even worse. If he gets, I think it's 70 or so yards per game over the next handful of games, he will crack a 1,000 yards again behind both of the two, really some of the worst lines of angles have had in recent memory. So that's something to be marveled with. And John, like I said with Joe Mixon, he is a volume guy. He is a volume touch guy. He seems to... He seems to get better as that it's it's an old adage but he seems to be one of those guys that just continues to kind of churn up yardage and tire a defense out especially you know he's he's showing physical play and I think that goes back to the effort but you know his style of play is he's going to seek out contact and you give him more carries he's going to he's going to produce
1: but, th- but that's the thing, though, because, like, I think early on, like, I-, I don't think that theory held up very well in this game. Because I think early on in the game, he definitely had some more. runs. Yeah, and, and, and the thing that I'm most impressed with, like, I I couldn't really care about the thousand darts thing. I think it's very arbitrary. What what I care about right now is that he ha- had his career high and avoided tackles in this game. I think yeah, if accounted kind of for six. And you definitely can remember all of them because they're very, re- very memorable on some big runs. So I think he had over three and a half uh, yards after contact per attempt and six avoid tackles. And those are both like some of the highest he's ever had in one game. And sure enough, he had his career high in rushing yards. So those, like, like you said, he definitely does like to take on contact. He's not afraid t- t- to, you know, initiate contact with a defender, but he's learning more to, to use his looseness and agility to make plays on his own. And with added block, with added better blocking, I think those two go in hand in hand with making him a better player.
0: I, I, I agree with, A lot of what you said there, I will say this, and someone else brought this up as we're sitting here kind of gushing about the coaching staff and everything. There were some very questionable play calling decisions uh, in this game on third down in goal to go situations in the red zone. And some of that were either giving Joe Mixon the ball from like uh, two straight carries from the seven yard line. And then, you you know, he doesn't get anything, and then now you've, you've dug yourself a hole. And then on another occasion, you're at the two-yard line from first and goal, and you line up in shotgun and pass it twice. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're in a hole there too. So very questionable play calling in certain scenarios, and obviously some of those situations would have boosted maybe Mixon's play a little bit. Um or or stats I guess a little bit but uh, that is one aspect of this game that really kind of cost the Bengals some of those critical play calls in situations and in those two drives I mentioned the Bengals turned the ball over on downs and got a field goal when they were at the seven yard line the Cleveland seven yard line from the first down and a first down at the Cleveland two yard line
1: three points that that that's unacceptable it's I the, he Dalton almost threw a pick on the on the first goal of yep. that. I, 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 if that was a pick six, I'm like they could really go back to Ryan Finley at this point. And honestly, like I don't, I, I don't. I don't hate the QB draw audible uh, on the second position of questions. Just the fact that they ran it earlier in the drive, that I think, kind of gave it away. And then Bobby Hart kind of allowed his guy to get a little bit too much depth and got him got him around, and kind of blew up the play in general. So these things are, you know, fun to look at in hindsight. I don't think they were the worst play calls, but definitely could have used a better execution. And of course, it's just like the Seahawks in the Super Bowl. Like it, it, damned if you damned if you didn't you know, run the ball with Marshawn Lynch and just beat the Patriots there and of trying to get Q a little a little pick play. So, like again, the, the red on troubles are definitely troubling, but those weren't the only situations where they could have won the game. So, right. at the end of the day, it's, it's all relative.
0: Right. Uh, we're going to get to Brent Taylor of Roll Bama Roll, the SB Nation blog, in just a few minutes here. He's going to join us to talk to Otago Bailoa, preview him and our, continue our 2020 prospect watch list before – we do, and we wrap up kind of the Browns talk, John. John, let's let's chat a little bit about Dalton and what you saw there. You know, the week prior, he is he's a guy that was you know his balls were you know not affected by the wind, and he was making throws, fitting him in Ducks. tight windows. Also, this, yeah, 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 but there, there, this week was he he was kind of back to the old Dalton. Right. Um, if if there was a better version of Dalton seen against the Jets this week, I, I feel like was the Dalton we saw through those first eight starts. Right. The one touch, you know, one interception, no touchdowns, kind of a, a decent amount of yardage. Completion percentage is kind of OK. And he's got him close, but not winning games. Uh, the pick six, however you want to slice it, you know, you can do the goal to go situations. But the pick six was kind of the score differential of the game.
1: But we, we just talked about the, the Dalton we saw last last week wasn't anything different than the Dalton we've, we've been accustomed to. So it, I don't know if I can say this is the return of the old Dalton. This is just still the same Dalton because in all, for all the positives that we talked about and, and the pauses that we talked about were worth talking about. The fact that they still lost was because of two reasons. The fact that the quarterback held them back and the fact that the play calling reflected the lack of confidence in said quarterback, which is also what we saw with Ryan Finley like there's a reason why they're losing these close games. And it's because the quarterback play is not elevating the rest of the town. And you know, the three things that uh, people have said have held back the quarterback or have not helped the quarterback, the running game, the offense line and the defense, they all played well enough to win. And if we can say that Dalton played well enough to win last week, we can say that those three aspects of this game, they played well enough to win. And the the fact of the matter is Andy Dalton played very badly, even played worse than Baker Mayfield, who also didn't have himself a very good game. So it was really more of the same story, and I'm, I'm not sure that it, it's more of a back to reality. I guess for some people it's like, okay, yeah, Andy Dalton isn't good anymore. Or it still isn't good despite that last game, but I don't think it, it means any, anything different from uh, the people who have their eyes open in this sense.
0: Yeah, it, you know, there's always there are always going to be excuses. There are, you know, the injuries and this, that, the other thing. The throw to Odden Tate that was a pick six – that was that was a poor throw, and and that's the guy who's got the biggest catch radius on the team, not named AJ Green. So, uh, and even, maybe even more so than AJ Green, but um, you know, it, it was a poor throw. There were a couple of other nice throws mixed in with some bad decisions, bad throws, and. You know, you've got 200-plus yards, uh, the interception, and no touchdowns, and and there you have it, another loss for the Bengals. So, um, you know, I I guess my, my thing was I thought he played better last week than he played this week. But sure. but like, like you said, uh, you know, stat line's very similar, end result very similar. And uh, unfortunately, you know, him under center – with or without certain personnel is not winning games for this team. And that's, that's why quarterback is a major discussion uh, for the Cincinnati Bengals coming up here as they approach the 2020 NFL draft. But the Bengals lose to the Browns, 27, 19, a one possession game, very weird game in terms of officiating and what the Bengals decided to do in the red zone and the late field goal, try for the onside kick, very odd game in my opinion, but um, kept it close. Another one of those one possession games. And, uh, you know, here we are one and 12 talking about another Cincinnati Bengals loss. Too many to they're, they're two and 14 in their last 16 games dating back to last year. So, um, you know, whether it's Driscoll or Dalton or Finley, they're just not winning games. And the quarterback position is, is something that just definitely needs to come under under scrutiny, whether some of you think it's fair or not. Um, that's that's kind of the reality of the situation. family of podcasts on Cincy Jungle's podcast channel, um, among other shows that are on that channel as well. So check out Matt Minnick's Chalk Talk, Orange is the New Black. Those are a couple of other shows that are on the the program slate. We appreciate you subscribing to the channel and getting this show. You can get it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Megaphone, iHeartRadio. You can get all of our stuff via, you know, the video is on youtube and all of our stuff is available on cincyjungle.com so let's bring in our special our, our first of two special guests this evening brent taylor who is with roll bama roll the SB nation site for the alabama crimson tide brent how you doing
3: hey anthony i'm doing good how about you guys
0: Good, good. Thanks for joining us. Hopefully, you can uh, see and/or hear us. All right. I appreciate you making the time to join us. We're gonna we're gonna primarily ask you kind of about uh, Tua Tua Tagovailoa. I guess I'll start with this though. Um, I don't want to say that that the Alabama season has derailed because they are still one of the strongest teams in the you know, in the nation, but had he not been injured, a do you think that the Bama team would be in the playoff picture, or do you think that, you know, that loss to to LSU kind of sealed their fate and the fact that, you know, the quarterback who came in for him just wasn't going to, you know, wasn't going to cut it, but do you think that him being healthy would have changed the current look of what's going on with the Crimson Tide?
3: You know, there, there's always those ifs. What, what if? And you, you hate it, but this Alabama's decade of basically college football dominance started when Colt McCoy got hurt in a national championship game. And so that that's kind of yeah. been a running joke is if only Colt hadn't got hurt. And we've made fun of Texas for years for that. So I, I guess I kind of have to lay off of that one. Uh But, but
0: ifs and buts, uh, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, ifs and buts. Uh the LSU game, I don't think that would have made a difference. I think Tua was about as healthy as he could have been. And Alabama just lost. The yeah. Auburn game, that that's a little different. Um you, you know, it was a three point game and the backup quarterback threw two pick sex is one of them in the end zone. But on the other hand, it was playing I guess you guys are from a lot further up north and probably don't see it much but when Alabama plays in Auburn things go bad in some way or another something always goes bad so I I don't know I don't hold a whole lot of hope regardless that Alabama would have won that one
0: so if you were to look at Tua as uh, as a Alabama quarterback and potential NFL prospect um, he's got a number of different strengths Uh, you know you could you could point to a handful the deep ball leadership uh, toughness playing through some of those injuries uh, you know a a lot of different stuff what what would you say as someone who has watched him ardently over the past consistency maybe is another one um, what did you say what would you say is his biggest strength or biggest positive trait of all the positive traits as he goes towards the NFL
3: so I'm this is this is one I'm actually really certain on. Uh, and it's one people don't talk about a whole lot with quarterbacks, but it's his, his pocket movement. And you'll see uh, one of the biggest detractors from a lot of your Facebook commenters and stuff is that it, it's too easy. He just stands in the pocket forever and then makes easy throws. And then you watch and you're like, oh, that's not because an offensive line is just making it easy for him. He's just got this way of, kind of drifting in a pocket, moving around a little bit, a little bit of Drew Brees in him that way of making a, you know, a poorly blocked offensive line look a lot better than they really were.
1: I definitely agree with that. I, I definitely see a lot of breeze in the way that he manipulates the pocket. But of course the one thing, you know, I, I would love for, for, the main discussion around Tua to be what he's good at, but obviously a lot of Bengals fans are really concerned about the injury and the current one right now and the fact that he already had a couple major ones uh, before this. So from someone who's followed his entire career, from someone who's kept the updates with all of his recoveries and whatnot, like I I don't want to say – I don't want to ask you if he's injury prone, but can you give – just the general fan of uh, the general NFL NFL fan, a prognosis of what injuries that Tua has has suffered and how he's recovered them, and what, in your best opinion, is his prognosis for his recovery
3: going forward in twenty twenty. So it started after his freshman year. Uh, everybody was kind of expecting him after the brilliant national championship game when he burst onto a national stage uh, to. Kind of take over that next spring game, and we could finally see him as a starter. And he broke his index finger, I think, maybe, maybe the middle finger, one of those, and had to miss the spring game. So, you know, it's just one of those little fluky things. Well, then halfway through his first season, uh, he had a knee injury. It was kind of, I think, and they never really disclosed what it was, but he kind right. of acted like maybe an MCL sprain. Not bad enough to have surgery, but enough to you know, wear some tight knee sleeves and hobble around a little bit. And then as it went on, um, he'd kind of get a little better. Then somebody hit him, he'd get worse for another week. And then he ended up spraining another ankle and it was either the other knee or the second ankle in the SEC championship game and ended up having to be benched because of that. Uh, He had a, tightrope surgery on that ankle and was ready to go for the championship game that year. And then came into this season and then had another ankle sprain, had another tightrope surgery. Was almost looking to full speed again and then had the devastating hip injury. Uh, When it first happened, there was a lot of people saying this was similar to the Bo Jackson injury back in the day. Mm -hmm. And it was going to be a career ender and he Struggled to even walk again and this and that. And then as the week went on, we heard more and more that they kind of expected maybe by a full recovery, maybe by even next season. Uh, Alabama's had another linebacker, CJ Mosley had the same injury in the national championship game in 2011, I think. Mm -hmm. And he wound up playing the next year after he was kind of slow the first few weeks. So there is precedent for coming back from that injury. Uh, and even as a quarterback, it's maybe not as important even if he doesn't get that full motion that, say, a receiver or cornerback would have. Uh, but again, hey, I'm not a doctor. And everyone <laughs> else on Twitter has speculated this one. So uh, e- either way, I, I'm not sure I'd hold out hope that he'd be ready to go at the start of next season. Uh, But maybe, you know, part of the way through the year, he'd be mostly ready to go and maybe even take a redshirt year almost just to learn how to be an NFL quarterback after he missed the whole offseason.
0: Talking with Brent Taylor of Roll Bama Roll of the SB Nation Network, the uh, SB Nation's Alabama Crimson Tide uh, community for for Alabama. There, um, talking about too, uh You know, one of the one of the concerns I think that Bengals fans have, and and quite honestly, it was one that was mine early in the process until I really started kind of watching a few more Alabama games. But you would definitely know this or know about this more clearly than I would. One of the concerns I think that a lot of people have is is two of the quarterback that raises everybody else's play or the Alabama super team with the great offensive line, the great receivers that maybe help him out a bit more. What do you think is more factor fiction there? You know, is, is, is Tua raising the play of others or is he a little bit of a product of such a great football team? Because Saban is such a, a great recruiter and they always get the talent.
3: Man, chicken or the egg there. Uh... <laughs> But I, I will say uh, that that is a hard one because the three or really four receivers Alabama's got right now are all such big play threats. They they just got so much speed. And But I, I will say in the years leading up to this, kind of one of the favorite criticisms of Saban's teams have been kind of a plodding, slow, not-all-that-effective of passing offense. You know, we've got the game manager quarterbacks, and maybe one receiver that's pretty good. You got a Julio Jones or Amari Cooper bailing you out on third down, and other than that, it's mostly ineffective. And then all of a sudden, you get one new quarterback, and all four receivers are making that quarterback good. After years and years and years of the offense kind of being held back by a passing game, uh, so that that's kind of where I'd point to that. But you know, it's also a changing of times. Passing's easier, easier than it ever has been, and all those receivers did come in at one time. So it very well could just be some really great receivers making great plays on slant routes.
1: That's very true. And this is this going to be kind of a going off of that. This is kind of be more of a tough question because two has had a lot of very productive games. Obviously, he's one of the most productive quarterbacks in college football history, and there hasn't been a lot of games where he's kind of looked human in in, in a sense where he hasn't been able to, to do what he does best. So off the top of your head, if there's one game where you would point to anybody and say, watch this game if you want to evaluate what Tua does well, and if there's one game where you say, watch this game if you want to see where Tua struggles over his career, what are the games that you're pointing at?
3: Um, the ones where he struggled. Well, uh, I would say first of all, you kind of have to take out the ones where he went out with an injury. The Georgia SEC championship was by far his worst, but he was also playing on a sprained ankle and knee in the same game. Um, uh, so I, I, probably his worst moments were in the championship loss to Clemson last year. Um. Uh, Highly televised, everyone saw it. But you you could kind of see where he knows. There's a little bit of that Brett Favre mentality of, I'm going to win this game, and we're throwing it deep. And so a a good defensive coordinator like Brett Venables pulled some stunts on him and uh, disguised some coverages. And so like one, one of his deep interceptions... He threw it as soon as his receiver beat the corner. Turned out it was a disguised cover two, and there was safety help just waiting there for it. So that that's kind of a big one to watch for. The other thing, uh, at the end of the, or no, end of the second half of the LSU game this year, he pulled it again. Twenty seconds left in the half. Decided to throw a risky one over the middle and just hit a linebacker straight in the chest. Wound up, else he drove it back and scored to twenty. And there's only twenty seconds left. And that that's actually one throw that he's had intercepted multiple times over the past three years. It's always that looking at a guy coming across a drag route and missing a linebacker coming the other way and cutting it off. So that that's been kind of his biggest. I guess, I guess a bugaboo is a certain throw. Is that. That deep crosser and a linebacker coming from the opposite direction. And for the best game to watch, uh, honestly, I would go back to his very first one, that championship win over Georgia. That was some great throws. The game winner in overtime. You know, he looks one way, then throws it deep the other. He's done that for three years since then and you think eventually this isn't going to work and it just keeps working.
0: Brent, what are you what are you thinking the level of success Tua can have behind an offensive line that that maybe is not um, not up to, to snuff or not one of the better ones in the NFL. I, I, you know, you look at his injuries, that's a concern. But you also mentioned that one of his strengths is his pocket awareness and his, his ability to navigate in the pocket. So, do you think that he could still be successful on a team? Because right now, the Bengals' offensive line is one of, if not the worst in the league. They'll get Jonah Williams back next year, but. D- you know the concern is there amongst the fan base and those who cover the team that you bring in a quarterback you spend this high pick and he's going to get killed behind this offensive line but there are some guys who find the way to make plays despite some of the shortcomings in front of them do you think that Tua can be a very effective NFL quarterback behind a patchwork offensive line or or worse than patchwork
3: ah uh, i mean that that's always going to be really hard for a quarterback behind an offensive line that rough. Um, uh, as, as a quick aside, um, uh, NFL wise, I'm actually a Seattle fan. So from Alabama, we don't have a pro team. I picked Seattle years and years ago because they drafted Sean Alexander. but uh, anyway, so for years I've been watching Russell Wilson run for his life. Most every play of the game behind a horrible <laughs> offensive line. Um, uh, So it, I mean, it can be done Uh, Tua is definitely not as fast or as good of a scrambler as like a Russell Wilson is, but he is better at not running the wrong way or running into people. So I I think he can be, I think enough. I don't know the Bengals offensive scheme, but I think if you're struggling with pass protection, there's got to be a lot of quick passes. And uh, under this year's offense, so 2018, Alabama had a very vertical offense. There was a lot of play action, deep shots. This year, under Steve Sarkeesian, it's been more of a standard West Coast, a lot of quick hitting stuff. Um, I I think that's important. And he's got a quick release and the ability to do that.
1: Talking with Brent Taylor from Roll Alabama Roll, the Alabama sp Nation site. Brent, I want to kind of transition to other players on Alabama's roster because Alabama is still a really good team and always produces quality NFL talents. Sticking with the offensive line, Alabama has two tackle prospects that are draft eligible and could declare for the NFL draft. One of them, uh, I think, Dane Brugler Jr. for the Athletic listed him has his top tackle prospect in in the NFL draft this year. Je- Jedrick Wills Jr and the other guy being Alex Leatherwood, in in your opinion, which of these guys really stands out more to you as, as the better professional going forward? Obviously, you know, you can classify which of them you think has been better in Alabama, but in terms of translatable skills into the NFL, like athleticism and how they handle power, which one are you more confident in having the better
3: NFL career? Uh, Gentric wills. Absolutely. Not, not even a second hesitation there. Um, He's been, even as a high school recruit, kind of one of the top testers in a lot of your athletic power, speed, acceleration, all those. And then Kent kind of came in his freshman year. He didn't start, but he quickly kind of pushed his way into rotation, played a good bit, and then sophomore year was a starter. And the fun thing about Wills is anytime you stop watching the ball and you move to the offensive line, and you look for 74, there's probably going to be one to two people on the ground somewhere around him. Like, wherever he is, there's chaos. And for an offensive line, it's just fun to watch. And, you know, he takes off into space on screen passes or blocking downfield, and he's almost more fun to watch than the running back. Uh, and as a pass protector, he's got good feet, and he does – He's had some issues with kind of catching stunts with smaller linemen. Getting inside of him has kind of been his biggest issue. Uh, For Alex Leatherwood, he came in as this really highly rated five-star tackle, but he he was kind of big and struggled with footwork early on. So he played guard his first year before moving to tackle this year. He's a little more of a prototypical tackle. He's got very strong arms, like like your lengthy strong arms that a lot of people want to see in a tackle. There's been a couple of times we've seen highlights of him blocking one guy with each arm. <laughs> but he, he's also been sig- a good bit less consistent than some of the other guys have been. So he, he's got a lot of size and potential. I wouldn't be surprised if Leatherwood actually comes back for a senior year, though.
0: Where do you see Jonah Williams falling in uh, between all those guys uh, talent-wise and NFL ceiling? We didn't get to see Jonah Williams this year really at all because he didn't play in training camp. He didn't practice. He didn't play in the preseason. So where do you see Jonah Williams being an Alabama guy? Um, and how ex- how excited should Bengals fans be about his his coming back to the team in 2020?
3: And Jonah Williams was just great. So He, he started for three years. Uh, and w- one of the f- best things about Williams was that you absolutely never noticed him. You could go an entire season and think, that he even play? <laughs> and for an offensive lineman, that, that's, that's what you want. Um, so I know leading up to the draft, the whole thing was about his arm length. And everybody said, well, he should be a guard. Uh, I don't know. I've never seen him play guard. But I know he was a really good tackle on both the right and left sides. And pass protection, you never had to worry about him. And he was a lot of fun to watch, kind of getting into the open field, blocking downfield. Kind of the biggest weakness we saw from him at Alabama was kind of in those short yardage, just lining up directly on some short nose tackle that's moved outside on a goal line or whatever. He could kind of get knocked back a little bit. He was just too tall and lean for those. But as a pass protector, he was as good as you could have ever asked for. And, again, a lot of fun watching him kind of pull outside of the line.
0: Well, that's something to look forward to most definitely for the Cincinnati Bengals. And they need... A lot of help on the offensive line. They they are they desperately missed him this year. Brent, we're gonna get you out of here. Before we do, we're gonna put you in the in the hot seat. A little bit of a prediction machine here. Where do you where do you see Tua going, and or where, where do you see the best fits in terms of maybe some of those teams that are sitting towards the top ten, top half of the draft? Um, as I know, we're a few months away from it, but uh, wh- what do you think on that? Where do you think he lands, and what do you think is the best fit?
3: Um, you know, honestly, before, it, if Ryan Tannehill had not broken out, I was thinking he'd fit really well with the Titans mm. and kind of the offense they've been wanting to try to run with Marcus Mariota and never have been able to. Uh but Tannehill has been playing so well lately. I think maybe they'll look a different direction. And, uh, I don't know the Titans record right now. Anyway, I think they're eight and five. So Eight and five, so they they'd probably be picking around twenty or so. But, um, so I'll I'll come off of that one. the The Dolphins tank for two, I don't think it's going to be a thing anymore. Everybody's looking for Joe Burrow now. So, how about the Oakland Raiders? Mm. Well, we'll throw it out there. Uh, they're kind of getting tired of Derek Carr over there. And are going to be looking for some compliments to a decent run game. So yeah, I'll go with the Oakland Raiders. Okay, Aaron so you, back with
1: Josh Jacobs,
0: yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, you think you think he may fall a little bit. Then you're you're thinking he may be because right now the Raiders are what are they six and seven or
3: something? Yeah, like that. So, some they're somewhere around fifty percent. Yeah, so um, you, I you, I think he could. It's it's one of those things with an injury like that. Uh, who was it a couple years ago that? the linebacker out of Notre Dame, I think. Oh, yeah. Is it, J.J. Uh, Smith. Smith. Yeah, Jalen Smith. You know, he fell from a surefire top-five pick. To Some were like, well, maybe he'll be a fourth or fifth rounder now. And it, it really all just depended on if a team decided to go for it, which, I mean, that's how it is with any pick. But with high-profile injuries like this, there's such a big range. If a top-five team says – I think will be better, then they might go for it. Yeah. But if no everybody thinks I don't think so, we'll wait and see and then who knows, he might drop to the Patriots.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh. Oh goodness. Um, what, a, what a week to, to bring that up Wow uh, to, to, Tommy Wagner in our Facebook chat Says Tua would go to the Colts I think that would be kind of interesting And possibly a good fit there too But uh, we'll see how it all plays out Brent, thanks for joining us I know we, we said 15 minutes I think we kept you much longer than that But we enjoyed chatting with you And getting the insight on Tua Tagovailoa And other Alabama prospects Both coming out this year And the one the Bengals grabbed last year Where can people follow you? Find your stuff? All that good stuff
3: uh, so our website is Roll Bama Roll. The Twitter handle is at Roll Bama Roll, and then I'm you. If you follow that, you'll end up seeing me eventually. I'm Brent Taylor. My Twitter is at btbama22. Uh, that, that's really it. But yeah, Roll Bama You'll see me riding right okay. there a good bit. Awesome.
0: Well, thanks. Uh, you guys do good work there. Thanks for for coming on the program. If the Bengals end up taking. Tua or other Alabama prospects in this coming draft. We'd love to have you back on and, and chat with you about it if you're willing and able.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, I'll do these podcasts. And a lot of times after Alabama players get picked, I'll do kind of guest writing pieces for the different SB Nation sites around. It's one of my favorite times of the year.
0: Awesome. Absolutely. We'd love, we'd love to, to tap you for some of that info. Appreciate you coming on, Brent.
3: All right. Thank you, guys.
0: All right. Take it easy. Uh that was Brent Taylor from Roll, Bama Roll, the S B Nation, uh, Alabama site there. Good stuff. Good, good uh insight on on Tua there, I thought, John, especially some of what he thought was the uh some of his strength, you know, his biggest area of strength. I thought that was a really interesting piece and something that could be very valuable to the Bengals
1: and he could have said so many different things like yeah. he, settled, he settled on pocket and silver. and that's definitely the thing that sticks out but like man he's like he's just the most balanced of these quarterback prospects in terms of strengths because he has great velocity in a, in an arm he has a quick release and he has the pocket management and skills and he has the production it's just it, it really is a shame that he's the one that has his injury issue
0: yeah they, it would this this I mean I think a lot of people a lot of Bengals fans would still be on the Burrow bandwagon, especially if the LSU game you know oh, of LFA, course. you know if that played out continue to play it the same way and if he remained healthy though, you know, the rest of the season, it, it would definitely make for a very interesting debate um going forward especially if he was able to get Bama into the playoffs maybe those two teams meet again in the play you know it's just like what if what if what if you know it's it's kind of a bummer but uh he seems like a really great kid so hopefully he can overcome that and have a have a great NFL career so um uh, you know really good stuff from Brent uh we're, we're seeing um you know uh, some some comments in the chat as well saying thanks Thanks Brent and, and whatnot. So good stuff from him. Go follow him, follow that website um, and get some information there, especially as the NFL draft approaches in, in a couple of months. So our thanks to him for helping us preview one of the, the major quarterback prospects, one of the big three um, in this year's class that the Bengals may be looking at and we'll be joined by Joseph Yoon in just a little bit to talk about Justin Herbert, the Oregon quarterback that uh that we'll be, you know, previewing him as well. Next week, we'll be talking uh, about Joe Burrow with uh, someone from the SB Nation LSU site. So, quarterbacks, quarterbacks, quarterbacks. I teased it at the beginning. This is the Orange or Black Insider Bengals podcast. He's John Sheeran. I'm Anthony Cazenza. We just talked with Brent Taylor you can get this show basically wherever you get your audio, audio podcast. So subscribe to our channels, get the show, uh, our show and a couple of others are on the, uh, Cincy Jungle podcast channel. So check it out. We appreciate the support. We appreciate all the feedback. We love seeing you guys tune in live and, uh, you know, interacting with us and each other. That's always cool to see. So try and join us live when, when we can, we're going to try and get To a listener questions uh episode this week we skipped it last week so maybe john if you're available we'll we'll get to that later this week and uh you can always send those our way but get this show how you can subscribe to our channels and as always keep it to cincyjungle.com for all the news opinions analysis and our podcasts john the Bengals face the the would you coin it the evil empire is that is this like the the version of uh i
1: I, I think evil is like implied there so it's just the okay
0: okay all right well the the empire uh they they are set to face bill belichick and tom brady um we'll get to kind of a little bit of chat about the game itself but before we do the headline that has dominated really kind of the NFL landscape uh, is the fact that the Patriots were caught videotaping the Bengals sideline while they're playing the Browns this week. Um, There are conflicting reports as to what happened, who it was, who the staff member was, what their purpose was. Patriots are doing their usual recoil and defense of their, I don't know, whatever it was, but, uh, I don't know, John. I mean, I, I tongue in cheek, you'd say, "Do you really even need to watch?" You know, you're the Patriots. You're do you? You've got Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. Do you even really need to do this uh, against a one and twelve team? But nothing really surprises me when it comes to whatever happens to the Bengals in 2019, and when a headline like this pops up about the New England Patriots,
1: like. So, so that whole comment, people forget that the team that they taped in Spygate 1.0 back in 2007 was the 4 and 12 New York Jets. And the, the Patriots that year went on to go to the Super Bowl with an undefeated record. They unfortunately lost the, the Giants in the Super Bowl, but that was one of the best teams in NFL history, um, doing that against a team that ended up picking like top five in the draft and ended up picking like Mark Sanchez or something. So. It doesn't matter who the, the opponent is. The Patriots will always try to find a competitive edge against any team that they play. Um, and you know, I, I think the Patriots, for, for starters, for one, r- recognize that the Bengals aren't like a, a traditional one and twelve team. They are playing a little, a little bit better than they are. They are playing competitive football. They've been in seven one score games. So they're from that just pure perspective. They're not taking the Bengals lightly. Two. Patriots aren't very playing very well on their own accord right now. They're on a two-game losing streak, and I don't remember the last time the Patriots have ever lost two games in a row. I Definitely don't remember the last time they've lost three games in a row. So, even with those factors going in, I don't think they would ever take a game like this lightly. And you know, you have to look back at back in 2015 when they were caught doing this exact thing, and they were saying that they were filming some filming some type of web series documentary. They're titling this one "Do Your Job," where it's just 10 minutes of little short videos about advanced scouts and press boxes doing their work. And the, you know, yeah, the fact that allegedly the videotape showed, I think, eight minutes of uninterrupted footage of the Bengals sideline and whatever, me personally... I I don't really care. Like it it doesn't affect me at all. It it doesn't affect my perception of the Bengals luck, of my perception of who the Patriots are. They're they're known for doing stuff like this. And really, like this is a this is a big deal in the NFL, specifically when the Patriots do it. This is a big deal in the MLB. When the I think the 2017 Astros were caught about something like this a couple like a month or two ago, how they were stealing uh, catcher symbols. From the two thousand seven, two thousand seventeen season when they won the World Series, and the NBA, this happens all the time. Like they have advanced scouts on, and I, this is something I didn't know. This is something I was introduced to. But they just like teams just have advanced scouts courtside and just watch and and just watch and take notes about what, what signs and signals coaches use and what type of communication devices that they use with players and stuff and and, and things of that nature. So it really is a matter of perspective of, of what sports you follow and and what how this stuff is tolerated. For me personally, though, like the Patriots are one of the best teams in football they're struggling right now, but they're, they, they wouldn't have any trouble being the Bengals regardless. And the fact that they did this again is not too surprising, but it's also something that I just have lost a lot of, of, of care and, and reason to care for as, as the, these incidents become more and more prominent.
0: Right. And I've been asked about this a lot this week. And I think my mindset was, yeah, this is super frustrating. It's, you know, okay. that, you know, what, why, you know, This team is very successful, and you uh, don't—they're—they're very successful because they uh, do—they build their team well. They're very well coached. They have a a great quarterback. All of those things. But in the back of your mind, you kind of do—well, you know, why—why do they have to be so successful and do—you know—do this line-crossing stuff? Why do you know? Why can't they do things the right way? You know, you can talk about. The owner and some of the hot water, legal hot water, he's been in. You can talk about this videotaping stuff. You can talk about the gate. It just follows this team, um, and you know they win. They're very good at a lot of different facets of football, building a team, cult building a culture, all of that. But unfortunately, part of the culture is win at all costs and win any way possible, and it's a lot of times in breaking the rules. And you know what? I, I don't know that that some of this stuff, the videotaping stuff, if they use it and how, how frequently they use it, how they... I don't know exactly how much it actually assists them. I tend to think that they were going to be successful and very successful regardless if they have this video of teams or not. But the fact of the matter is they're breaking rules. And, you know, it, for them, if getting... The, the NFL isn't vacating wins like what happens in the NCAA. They're still going to have their rings. They're still going to have the the perfect regular season. They're still going to have all these records. And really, I mean, if if these guys have the money to pay fines, if they're, they're sacrificing draft picks, their first-round picks are usually in the 30s anyway. So it's kind of like, well, if we can get the rings, the playoff wins, and we get caught every once in a while – their mindset is probably like who cares they're not taking away our rings from us or anything
1: and and i and i honestly believe belichick when he says this has nothing to do with football operations because this stuff gets actually posted online you can anybody can watch it so it's not out of belichick's legal right to just go on patriots.com and watch this stuff for himself and take notes for what the videotape is showing if they're actually showing stuff on the silence he can he can definitely go ahead and do that but i I, it, it, again, like I believe when Belichick is saying this, but I also in the back of my mind think that this is the similar stuff to what we heard four years ago, five years ago. Let's just call it what it is, and you guys got caught again. So again, like yeah, it, it's it's against the rules, but it's kind of like you know just a little misdemeanor that you get caught in jail. Like yeah, like it's illegal and you shouldn't do that, but at the end of the day are we really going to be upset about are we really are really going to care that much about it because it doesn't really affect not only our lives, but it won't affect the outcome of this game necessarily. And, and it's not going to give the Patriots that much of a competitive advantage because there's only so much that you can garner for, for eight minutes of, of silent footage. And so again, it, it's out of, it's definitely out of my area of expertise and how this stuff gets implemented into overall operations and game planning and stuff. But I, I, I'm trying hard to, to care about it, but I, I just can't muster up any emotion.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's kind of like, you know, (laughs) this year for the Cincinnati Bengals has been a weird one. It's been frustrating to to watch and these type of things where they're, I guess, a victim, if you want to call them that. Um, It's just kind of part and parcel of a season just not going well, nothing going their way. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's going to make a big difference. Like you mentioned, John, this is a Patriots team that does not lose often at all. They rarely ever lose twice in a row. They like never lose after a buy. I mean, they just, they just know how to win. Uh, and you know, I, kind of was thinking you made the comment. I don't know the last time they, they lost two in a row. I was thinking back to the 2014 we're on to Cincinnati game. They didn't lose two in a row then. Um, they, they just got their, their butt handed to them by the Chiefs and people were doubting them and of course they they stomped Cincinnati on on national television and then they went on to win the Super Bowl. So do, do you see? I mean, how do you see this game playing out here? Is this is this an ass kicking in the making because this is a you know a, a very emotionally charged. Patriots team maybe this maybe they don't want to admit it but maybe this looks like the last one of the last hurrahs of Tom Brady and and Bill Belichick we say that but somehow they keep getting it done um I I don't know I mean or is this one of those games where the Bengals may may surprise us a little bit and be more competitive someone I noticed earlier said this is maybe one of the better chances for the Bengals to beat Belichick and Brady I'm going to put up some stats on that in a second but um your thoughts on this game going into it
1: this is definitely one of their best chances because I think everybody needs to realize that, yeah, for the past few years, we've been teased with the decline of Brady, but he's somehow been able to turn it on when it when it matters most. Tom Brady right now is playing like an average quarterback, at best, uh, like an average quarterback. His play has been declining over the past several weeks. I think it's been attributed partly to his elbow injury partly to the fact that guys aren't getting as open as he's usually accustomed to but balls are just not coming out of his uh, out of his throwing hand as well as it used to and like it, like it, it, he's not immortal like he can be t- he can have the TB12 system he can be gluten free or whatever he's doing um you know behind the behind the scenes he's 42 43 years old he's he, age is going to catch up to him it's catching up to him right now he's playing like an average quarterback and that gives the Bengals an opportunity to keep this one close the problem is that defense is still it's not an all-time defense. It was nearing that rate towards the earlier part of the season, but it, it's still in the conversation as one of the best defenses we've seen this decade. And that's gonna what that's gonna be ultimately what hinders the Bengals because they're gonna have a chance to keep up with the Patriots because their offense isn't that isn't doing that good. And the Bengals defense is progressing in the other direction, but it's just up to the fact that can Andy Dalton do anything against that defense? and That defense will stifle the Bengals receivers at the line of scrimmage. They have an all pro cornerback and stuff on Gilmore an all pro free safety and Devin McCordy, a secondary that works better than any other unit in the NFL. And it's mainly because Belichick's like, okay, my last, two or three defensive coordinators have gone to be head coaches. I'll just take the reins and run the defense. And wouldn't you know, it's like the like the best defense we've seen in recent memory. So that defense is still clicking on all cylinders. It's still what keeps them in, in games competitively, even with a, a, a declining Tom Brady. But it's going to take, like, like the, when they beat the Patriots in 2013 because of that monsoon at the end, and then Adam Jones had the interception, it's going to basically take a monsoon for three hours in order for the Bengals to, to you know, to, to do anything in terms of winning this game. So I still think... The Patriots come out on top. It's probably going to be an u- ugly game unless miraculously Tom Brady gets, you know, five years younger and, and his elbow feels 100. percent But I don't think we're going to see anything spectacular from him. But unfortunately, we're not going to see any, anything spectacular from Andy Dalton against this defense.
0: A- acts of God, it sounds like, is what, right. uh, what what's needed. You can see here on the on the screen I'm sharing here. Uh, these last contests, with uh, Bengals are one in six against. Bill Belichick and Tom Brady dating back to 2004. This win in 2001 was against Pete Carroll and Drew Bledsoe. Um, So that, you know, that's a long time ago. And then, of course, this game in 2013 was the game that you uh, are referencing where the Bengals put out a win in that uh, really, really solid 2013 season for the Bengals, really good defense. And, uh, you know, Dalton threw a lot of touchdowns that year, (laughs) but – you know, uh, not a good track record, as you can see, for the Cincinnati Bengals, especially in the Belichick-Brady era. Uh, and and here's the other thing. If you look at these scores, aside from 2004 when the Bengals had a very uh, potent offense, I mean, 38-13, 34-13, two touchdowns there in 2010, and that was on opening day, and that game was out of control really fast. So that's actually more generous than what that score would indicate. Uh, you know, 13 to 6, the win. They barely pulled that off. The, we're on the Cincinnati game in 2014, 43 to 17. And then uh, in 2016, 35 to 17. So not the
1: most. <laughs> Like uh, they, stink, yeah, yeah, they stink against them. It is what it right, is, right?
0: Right. Uh, I do think that this week uh, they have a good chance to potentially um, keep it relatively close because you know of what the Patriots have and have not been doing. But I think that this we're we're not going to be seeing the eighth one possession defeat by the Cincinnati Bengals this week. Is
1: what I think. And just real quick, Troy Taylor in the comments section. I know this is something that you mentioned on Twitter. How about Mike Brown saying he doesn't care about them cheating? Dude's a joke. And I again, like, (laughs) I think he had more of a reaction to that than I did.
0: Yeah, I you know, his his comment was, "I don't have anything for you," uh, apparently to a reporter. Um, You know, Mike Brown doesn't say a lot to the media at all. The fact that he said
1: anything like at this point of the season, right?
0: Right, he doesn't talk to anybody. Um, that comment just really sums up Mike Brown. <laughs> um, uh, just you know, it, it was kind of a polite middle finger, if there is such a thing. It was just kind of like you know, I, I'm just not talking about it. Um, so very interesting situation. Do you think? Do you think the Patriots get penalized for this, or do you think they're going to kind of just? do you think it's going to come out and be like, ah, they were actually kind of on the up and up with that.
1: So I think it was trending to the fact that they were buying the Patriots excuses similar to 2015. But like, again, they were penalized, I think 250,000 back in 2007 in that first round pig. And if it gets to that point in the investigation where there's indisputable evidence and God, I'm sounding like a referee now. Yeah. They could definitely be, they could definitely be penalized. And the fact that this is a repeat uh, offender in this specific case, you could definitely see, see something like that. But I think the the initial reports were that the NFL was was understanding about them and the fact that they're cooperating with the situation in general. Um, I don't know. It could it could be either way, but if they're gonna get if they're going get penalized, it's gonna be more than what we would see for any other team in this situation.
0: That's where I was going next. I mean, how severe would you would you think something like this is because they've been caught doing it before they've been they've got you know all kinds of different stuff in their history. Um, <laughs> their, their owner, you know, like I mentioned, getting in some hot water this uh, this last offseason. I mean, is this going to be something like whoa, or do you think it's going to be kind of just a slightly bit heavier than what has been done
1: before? I, I, there, there's a guy on Twitter I, I follow, and he follows me, Tracy McBrady. Um, I, I think that's his ad. He was talking about. Um, well, someone asked me if if, if the Bengals could 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 just grab the Patriots first round pick as, as punishment instead of the Patriots just forfeiting that pick. And, and Tracy was like, yeah, what if the NFL could have like a lottery of like the 31 teams fighting for that one pick and how much viewership it would draw. That would be kind of interesting, but now like a first round pick would probably be the most that they would see. And it would be another fine. I don't know if you can get anything more than that, or if you can get two years worth of first round picks, but the, the Bengals aren't going to benefit off it. So I don't really don't care.
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, they're not, they're not reaping the benefits on that. So Bengals uh, face off against the new England Patriots this week. I, you know, I'd like to say that they're going to put up a good fight and uh, you know, it's just not uh, it it is, it is in Cincinnati. So, I mean, I guess on that front, uh, you can kind of, you can kind of say, well, maybe, maybe that'll help them a little bit. Last time they played in Cincinnati it was they had that monsoon. So <laughs> uh yeah. Uh you got a score prediction, John?
1: God. Um like this is two very bad offenses right now against um a surging but still bad defense and a really great defense. So the edges obviously with the Patriots something along the lines of like a and I can and I can totally see like they're running in, like just taking off flight against the Bengals when, when Brady's just not looking good. So maybe something like like a 26 to, to 10 victory for the patriots sounds about right. Whoa, what was that? 26-10. Tommy. Okay. okay. Okay.
0: Yeah, I mean I I I think uh, you know, maybe 27-14 or, you know, it's kind of what I'm what I'm thinking. I don't I don't think it's going to be anything to uh to write home about. So I don't know. Well, <laughs> Michael Myers 42 to 10 New England um yeah that would not be fun to watch uh then again not many not many games have been overly fun to watch this year we're waiting on joseph Yoon of addicted to quack the sb nation oregon website to help us preview justin herbert uh we'll be here just for a little while longer we're going a little long tonight but uh we had a couple of interviews and we wanted to get to both of them john uh any before uh we we bring joseph on any uh additional or I, we usually do final thoughts at the end here, but I think we're going to close with that, mm-hmm. with that interview. So any, any kind of additional thoughts or final thoughts that you want to touch on before we bring, uh, hopefully bring Joseph on. We're waiting to hear from him here.
1: I, I, this whole show has got me a little nostalgic because we used, we used to go at, at an hour, and 30 minutes when I first got on here and we used to <laughs> that was like a thing for the first year. Or so we did a good job of, of, of minimizing the time to make it easier for the viewers, but I'm just, I'm feeling like it's back to the old days going, going 90 minute shows and this this time two guests. So we're we're really, really stepping it up a notch.
0: Yeah, we, uh, I think we tried to go short recently and it just didn't, I don't know, it didn't work. Uh, (laughs) but we, we like to keep them right around an hour or maybe a little less if we're able to, but you know, when we have brought on a couple of guests recently, it's, it's gone on a little longer, but hopefully you guys are enjoying those, um, you know, we had James Rapine on last week, and uh, he was he was a lot of fun to talk to. Um, he he seems to be very critical of, of the whole Cleveland regime and the direction of of where the Browns are heading. So, um, uh, <laughs> when
1: you when you give when you give people twenty years of misery and then a slight glimpse of hope, and then have all that hope eradicated in like a span of four months, so you're you're going to see some backlash, and deservedly so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: man, these, these teams, these Ohio teams are just not, uh, they're not getting it together. Um, you know, unfortunately they're just, uh, they're struggling. And even when they seem to be heading in a potential right direction, um, they're not. So, uh, we're going to check here with Joseph to see, um, When he is coming on, he was uh, scheduled to come on here in just a minute, so we'll see what's going on there and uh, hopefully bring him on. We did talk with Brett Taylor of Roll Bama Roll, the SB Nation's Alabama website. He helped us uh, preview Tua Tagovailoa as we uh, continued our 2020 prospect watch, and it was good to talk to him and and, uh, get some insight there. Hopefully the Bengals maybe draft some. Alabama players this year and, and we can bring him back on the program if if the player fit is right, of course. This is the Orange and Black uh, Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. He's John Sharon, I'm Anthony Kazenza. You can get the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. You can get it on the megaphone platform iHeartRadio, YouTube, and CincyJungle.com. Well, John, uh, waiting to hear back from Joseph. We'll give him another minute. Hopefully, he he comes on here. Uh, I hope he does.
1: We we I, th- I, I think it's fitting that you know the Oregon guy is the guy that makes the East Coasters stay up till ten. And, you know, I, th- I think it's I think that's very fitting.
0: When we when we were conversing, um, you know, it's funny. It, it was usually I, when I converse with folks, it was like it's always Eastern. Eastern time, Eastern time, Eastern time. And it's it's kind of regardless of, most of them are on that time zone anyway, but, um, you know, it's just funny how that Eastern, 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 but, um, you know, Brent was, uh, he referenced Central Time and, and Joseph was talking about Pacific Time and uh, it's a rarity. And I, I appreciate it being where I am. But yeah. yes, I, I, I do find it humorous that he's making everyone, he's having everybody stay up late, uh, especially you.
1: <laughs> um we, we got we got a question in in, in the comments uh, okay from, from brian kramer that we're that we're definitely that i definitely want to use uh for for the interview for um for our organ guests so yeah uh, but also from alex heed uh stadium attends this week over under twenty thousand and zach uh Z- Z- Zender, I think, below him, over twenty five thousand Pat's fans alone. That's definitely what's going to do it. Like this isn't this isn't a Jets situation. Like there's no casual Jets fans in Bank- in Cincinnati. That's why that game was only thirty five thousand. You're going to see close to forty or fifty thousand primarily because people want to see the Patriots and people want to see uh, TB twelve for sure.
0: So you th- you think that they'll have more than. Well game. yeah,
1: yeah. And, and and that's why the Steelers games are always are always packed even when the Bengals are bad because there's a lot of Steelers fans. It's just natural.
0: Yeah. Uh interesting that I what, some of the tickets for the Browns Bengals game. What what how low did they get last week? I saw something that was like
1: If they're anything over like thirty dollars is just insulting at this point. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. It's uh yeah, that's that's interesting, but uh, the the Bengals take on the Patriots here, but uh, they've got their eyes towards the future. Um, and speaking of the future, we bring in our second special guest of the night, Joseph Yoon. Joseph, how are you, sir? Can you hear us okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Awesome. How's it going tonight?
2: Pretty good. How about yourself?
0: Good. Thanks for joining us. I know you had a lot going on, um, but we, we appreciate you, you joining us talking a little ducks football. Um, you know we're going to primarily focus on Justin Herbert because the Cincinnati Bengals are most likely going to be in, a, in the market for a quarterback, particularly at the top of the first round and Justin Herbert is one of those big three quote unquote that uh, they might be looking at. So we'll kind of we'll kind of ask you start off a little bit with uh, a little bit of a profile of Herbert what, what would you say? Is his his biggest strength because he's got the arm strength, he's got the size, he's got some athleticism, mobility, that sort of thing. What would you say as an NFL prof, prospect of the many strengths that Justin Herbert has is his biggest strength as a pro, as a potential pro?
2: Um, like you said earlier, the his arm talent is his biggest strength as of right now, and his adaptability to different offensive schemes because he went through three offensive coordinators so far in his mm. career so different completely different schemes and um because uh, his first coach was um I, I think it was Willie taggart and he runs a baylor style mm-hmm. offense uh, where the receivers almost line up in the su- in the stands pretty much and um and right now he's under marcus Arroyo who, who under um Mario Cristobal, who prefers the pro style system. So I think his adaptability is his biggest strength. That's very interesting. Um, Just
1: over the course of of Herbert's career, um, his production in terms of touch and interception ratio has been stable. His completion percentage and overall accuracy has been something a little bit more volatile. He was at 67% back in 2017, dropped back down to 59% last year, but now is up to, 66.7% 66.7% this year, um, you know, and a lot of that can be attributed to a, a lot more or, or shorter average depth of target and how you know, that Oregon offense hasn't asked him to really push the ball down the field, but also the, do you see, you know, an improvement in terms of overall accuracy and the fact that there's been a lot of drops from Oregon receivers kind of hurting him in terms of overall completion process. Have you seen necessary growth from him as a prospect in in terms of accuracy and that can be attributed to that increase in completion percentage.
2: Well, last year uh, Oregon led the led the country in drops from his receivers, and he had a he had a favorite target last year, Dylan Mitchell, who was undrafted free agent from the Vikings. And so obviously he didn't have Mitchell this year, so he had to spread the targets around, and. Yeah, so it's um I believe his accuracy is more towards like sixty-two, sixty three percent than the fifty-nine that we saw last year.
0: Yeah, his his uh completion percentage uh actually is the second highest that he's had mm-hmm. in his career, sixty-six point seven. He had sixty seven and a half, but he only started eight games there. I, I think Joseph, the big question here is you know, why the inconsistency? Uh, is, it, is it John, my co-host, mentioned the drops. Uh, you kind of talked to that a little bit. Justin Herbert seems to have, of, of all of the quarterbacks in this draft, I think raw talent-wise, he's probably got it all. You mentioned the arm strength, all of that. Why some of the inconsistency? Why some of the disappearing acts in uh, bigger games or, or games they had to have um you know I think that's probably the biggest concern and why he might be uh you know a little bit further down the pecking order for some teams as they look to draft a quarterback
2: um fundamentally speaking as a passer he's not fully developed yet because he's been he's been hurt a bunch earlier on in his career he had a collarbone injury his sophomore season I believe and then um and then his, his lower half needs uh, needs a lot of work because he likes to throw off his back foot a lot, like uh, a lot like Jay Cutler does in the past, unfortunately. And um, he's not he doesn't he doesn't throw any ante- anticipation throws. He doesn't throw any receivers open. Hmm. He just throws it. He just throws it to a spot, and hopefully re- the receiver's there. He's that kind of passer. So um, basically. He needs a babysitter like uh, Jared Goff does with Sean McVay. <laughs> so, yeah, basically the scheme requires him to have a receiver open at all times. So he's uh, he has zero anticipation oh, is boy. what I'm trying to say.
1: <laughs> yeah. so, so obviously, like you said, he's not fully developed and he is more of a raw prospect, even though he has four years of starting experience. But, that, I mean, that that raw arm strength and getting about some situations. And it's definitely fun to watch in terms of, of dealing with pressure and, and creating out of structure. Would you say it's more of a strength or weakness for, for him? Because playing in Cincinnati, you're, you're going to deal with some pressure in your face from time to mm-hmm. time because their offense line is still struggling. And so, and sometimes guys aren't going to be open initially and you may have to mm-hmm. find different passing lanes out of the pocket. Would you say that right now that, that you're comfortable like has he improved in that area where when he escapes the pocket it's more of a, well let's see what he's gonna do instead of a, oh my god he's 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 going out of structure.
2: Um, he's he's definitely growing in that regard, but his pocket awareness is um is almost Blaine gabbard esque. Oh, so, well. yeah, he's he has a tendency to lower his eyes and uh, just scramble, but he takes a lot of sacks, unfortunately and uh the oregon offensive line as you as you might know, is one of the best in the country yeah. mm-hmm. so it's um most of the sacks were on Herbert, but there were some sacks on the offensive line, but mostly it's just he doesn't have the pocket awareness that a senior should have. It's more like true freshman level, but it's um it's the offensive line didn't develop until basically his junior and senior year. Where they got thrown into the fire early, so they had to develop a, really quickly. And as you know, undeveloped linemen are, you know, not good. So, um, yeah, it's just, he tends to try to fade away from the pressure. And it's not, he has arm talent to get the throws there. It's just, sometimes it's just hit or miss, it's like a mixed bag of what you get.
0: Talking with Joseph Yun of Addicted to Quack, the SB Nation Oregon website. Uh, appreciate his time talking some Justin Herbert with us. Um, I, I want to, we've been talking quite a bit about Justin Herbert. We'll kind of circle back around to that as we conclude. But um saw a comment in our live chat about Troy Dye, who actually is a, a brother of former Bengal Tony Dye. Um, Talk about him a little bit. Is he is he worth a look for the Bengals as a as a linebacker kind of hybrid player? Um, and if so, maybe you know what's his value?
2: I would put his value around maybe the highest would be the third round. Maybe the lowest I would take him is a fifth round because uh, he he has he's kind of a tweener frame wise, so you don't know where to place him actually. So he's kind of like a Dion Buchanan for the Cardinals way back in the day. Well, not way back, but, you know, a couple of years ago. But um, he, from the scouting reports, he's, uh, that I've written in the past, that he's, he has good tackle numbers, but he's not very physical at the point of the attack. So that may be due to frame, that may be due to defensive scheme, but um, he's not very, he's not what you would call a Luke Keekly or anything. He's just a, uh, he may be a two-down linebacker at the next level.
1: Well, there's still definitely value in that, but yeah, I, I think you, you you hit the nail on the head there. He's I think projected right now in about the the day two range, but that's still mm-hmm. definitely definitely some a player that the Bengals yeah. could could definitely value there. Going back to Herbert, we had a um a, we had a fan commenting Brian Creamer. He wants to ask, did Herm Edwards and Marvin Lewis both coaches, for Arizona State? Did he do a good job of exposing Herbert's weaknesses in that game? Because that game ultimately. Put Oregon out of the college football playoff race and kind of rattled him for a little bit. And that was a great game from Arizona State. So, was there anything that you saw from from their defensive game plan that really um, got got Herbert off the wrong way?
2: Not really. I think they just copied the Auburn game plan where they just forced a lot of pressure on him and made him really see ghosts out there, so to speak. And uh, he's um he's not very he doesn't deal well with pressure. I'll say.
0: Talking with Joseph Young here, uh, kind of to to close up here. What is your confidence level in Justin Herbert? I mean, I, I've kind of held the position as you know he's he is a boomer bust prospect. He could be he could become the best quarterback of this class, but given his physical tools, or some of these things you're talking about, could be. You know, he he could wreck a franchise. He could be a Blaine Gabbert, where you use a top five, top ten pick on the guy, and and you rely on him to be the next franchise quarterback, and it just never materializes. Where we've heard we've heard you compare him a little bit to Jay Cutler. We've heard the Blaine Gabbert comparison. Where do you where do you see his? you know trajectory going in the NFL do you have confidence that he's going to work through some of these things or are these things that are always going to be part and parcel of his style of play and he's going to just you know he's he's never going to really put it together as a true pro, pro- prospect
2: uh he definitely has the tools to be some uh, like a franchise passer, and if he goes to the Bengals I think he's going to the right staff but um not this year anyway, but sorry to for a shade. <laughs> no, uh, okay. I think Zach Taylor would uh, get him on the right path fundamentally. But overall, I think he could be best case scenario overall. He could be, um, he could be a more athletic Ryan Tannehill. Hmm. Worst case, he could be out of the league in four years. Yeah, maybe a Jake Locker
0: uh yeah. someone, someone like that well thanks joseph i appreciate the time uh where can people follow you follow your stuff and and uh, get in touch with you
2: uh addicted to quack i uh, write for and i also run addicted to quack the twitter account so my personal account is at ducking Knowles 24 7
0: cool well appreciate you coming on if the Bengals select some ducks players we'd love to have you back on chat about them if you're willing and able
2: yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you making the time, man. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was Joseph Yun of Addicted to Quack. Uh, not exactly the glowing endorsement of of Justin Herbert there, but hey, he's a guy who's watched a lot of Justin Herbert, and those issues are, I mean, that's that's what we've seen. That's what a lot of people have seen, and that's what people are worried about. It's it's can you do you feel you can coach your way through those and and get him past some of these issues we've seen, the eyes down, the, you know, some of the anticipation issues and you're able to marry that with the physical tools or is, are are the, are the, you know, weaknesses just always going to outweigh the strengths.
1: And I think you hit the nail on the head there. Like, you know, this is, I mean, everything that he says is logical and and what we've seen from him. And I think in part of it was, you know, he had that great game against Arizona and that kind of raised his hype a little bit and raised his stock. But then he, you know, he and Oregon, as a whole team kind of faded out of the conversation as, as the year went on and he didn't play really his best football towards the end of the year. So, you know, right now the, the opinion on him is, is more down than anything, but like you said, like the, like the tools are there and if someone can develop them, they, they can potentially have a great quarterback, but you know, it, it, it'll take, you know, that quick development for him to, you know, fix some of those nagging weaknesses and turn them into strengths. And if he can't do that early on in his career, it's going to be really hard for him to turn around and stick in the league. So, like it really does depend on where he goes and how much time he's given, but honestly, like a, a prognosis of at best Orion Tannehill is not the most promising you want to hear.
0: Right, uh, you know, I think I think aside from the tools, the major other strength that Joseph touched on that I thought that I, I think the teams will like is the fact that he seems to be like a scheme diverse guy. He can work in multiple schemes. He can do multiple things. He's got the athleticism to, to work in, in different schemes. I wasn't actually aware he's had three offensive coordinators the past three years. So that's always a difficult thing for, for a quarterback to work through obviously head coaching changes as well mixed in there. So um, you know, I don't, I don't want to go too much into the, making excuses for the guy, but uh, you know, there, there are things to work through. And I think if you listened a a little while back, there was a video from Greg Cosell of very well-respected NFL films and quarterback film guy. Uh, He kind of said, you know, Justin Herbert's a guy that is very, you know, diverse. He can work in a lot of different schemes and that's why teams will like him along with the raw tools that he has. So, um, you know, I, I thought that was kind of an interesting standpoint as
1: well. You can you can do anything with that arm talent. You yeah. he you can put any he can put the ball anywhere on the field, and, and he's got the athleticism for being six six two thirty to to roll out of the pocket to make throws on the run. It's all about just getting the the technical aspects down, and it's it's discouraging for a four year player to still struggle with these issues. But I guess it was. I don't know. It's, it's going to be interesting because he was projected to be potentially a first-round pick last year had he declared, but these issues still would have existed and would have plagued his rookie year probably if he would have played. So I don't know if, if returning to a senior year was the best decision for him because now we have more tape and raised a lot more questions about him, but he definitely needed the extra year development before he was thrown into the wolves, the NFL. So it'll be interesting to see how his stock kind of um, volatilates during this process.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, who knows? Good, good combine, good, Pro Day, throwing the ball well—that could that could have people drooling. Who knows? And especially if you know, who knows what happens with the prognosis of Tua's recovery, right? If it gets, you know, we heard from Brent earlier saying you know he could see this being a red shirt year. Well, you know, if you're a t- team picking in the top ten, you're not really interested in that. If you need a quarterback, you need a guy to come in now and, mm-hmm. and play right away, uh, for the most part. So, um, you know, that could that can maneuver things around as well. But our thanks to both of those guys, Joseph Yun. Of Addicted to Quack joining us here a little late, and Brent Taylor of Roll Bama Roll. We had a question here. Josh Wooded asked Anthony, When did you say the LSU guy is coming on? That'll be next week. Um, so he will be joining us next week to uh, talk about Joe Burrow. That's uh, obviously the. Um, it's B- Billy Gomilla is set to join us um, next week. Uh, he is with the, um, he is, he is with the LSU SB nation site, and he's going to talk to, about Joe Burrow with us. So, um, we, we look forward to that. Obviously we tease you with these two and everybody wants to hear about Joe Burrow. So, uh, hmm. we'll, we'll talk about that. Our thanks for all of you for hanging with us, tuning in. We may break this episode up in terms of digestible uh digestible show for for the audio listeners after the fact we'll see how that works out but at any rate thanks for tuning in john thanks for sticking around late man i know it's late on your end uh we will be doing or at least i we'll be doing hopefully John can join me listener questions this Friday afternoon. So join us for that on, on Cincy jungles, Facebook and the orange and black insider YouTube channel. Thanks for tuning in everybody. John, thanks for hanging late, man. I appreciate it. Uh, nice, nice will... just getting started my man. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I'll talk to everybody later. We're tired, but we're, we're happy to bring this show to you. And we, we got to a lot tonight, John. So gotta like that. Great. Have a good one.